As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everyone and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry and on this episode we're talking all about Decision Day, the last day of Major League Soccer's regular season that took place on Sunday. All but one of MLS's 27 teams took the field on Sunday with several playoff spots up for grabs and some seeding still left to be done. And predictably, there were some wild moments and some wild games as well. Joining me today to look back at some of the craziness and to look ahead to the postseason is a man who I bet has watched more MLS games this season than anyone else. It's MLSsoccer.com's Matt Doyle. Doyle, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, my friend. I, I, I imagine that every year in this entire world, I finish <laughs> on the podium somewhere in terms of most total MLS games watched. Yes. I would guess... I would guess Rick Laws finishes number one, the great Rick Laws, who has been in the league since day one and is the uh, the master of the history books. Um, I'm assuming he gets the gold every year, but like I, I'm sure I've been racking up silver medals for basically the entirety of my adult life. Which is incredibly impressive. It blows my mind. I, I'd like to think that I've watched a lot of Major League Soccer, and then I read your column on Monday mornings, and I realize just how much I miss. There's just not enough hours in the day, man, and I, I genuinely don't know how you do it. I don't know. How comfortable are you with revealing how the sausage is made? Like, how much do you think you actually watch on a week or, or you know, twice-a-week basis? Like, how many minutes are you spending watching Major League Soccer or writing about it and pumping out, you know, 4,000 words or whatever it is? Uh, it's more than a 40 hour work week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say that from, so there's 13 games a weekend. I would say I watch seven or eight of them completely every, every single weekend. Um, And then the rest, the other five or six I'll I'll watch um, on the website. They do 15 minute game uh, highlight reels. So I'll watch that. And then I'll, you know, I'll look at the second spectrum stuff and the Optus stuff. Um, and then for, obviously it's tougher with the midweek stuff. We had some Wednesdays this week that had 13 games on a Wednesday. Like I, <laughs> you know, you could get maybe four of those 
in like in in total and then uh, for the rest they're definitely leaning more on the week on the recaps but i would say so in general probably ended up watching somewhere around 60 percent of the entire mls schedule man yeah full 90 minute chunks and the rest of them were were recaps and then there were a couple of games um that ended up like just brutal scoreless draws that i didn't it, like i clicked on the scoreboard i looked the the lineups i didn't watch a single thing from maybe a half <laughs> dozen of those games <laughs> oh my word okay I, I got one more follow-up question before we get into the real meat here how how do your eyes stay in, in your head i i just get tired of looking at a screen after a while and i think in this day and age we're all on our phones or on our computers too much but when your job is to watch 60 plus percent of every minute of every mls game how like do you have eye drops do you just take frequent <laughs> naps what is the protocol here man? uh i get up and i stretch a lot uh that that's a, that's a big one like it, having done this for a good long while now i I'm, i have a pretty finely tuned understanding of when headaches are coming on yep yep um and uh and and you know so dealing with that usually means hydration or a little snack or or you know 3 minutes of stretching something like that and then the the greatest motivating factor and the greatest um way to to sort of remember to keep your eyes open and to to keep doing the job is is knowing that there are young hungry kids like joe lowry coming up <laughs> and you know ready to ready to steal my job so i gotta stay on my toes uh, otherwise you know i'll be out on the street that's right Doyle. keep it together man you gotta work <laughs> for it um okay i want to set the the foundation for us here decision day wise to really give us a basis for this conversation so i'm gonna lay out what was happening before decision day again last day of the mls regular season some real playoff Im- implications in both conferences so in the east there were four spots that had already been clinched new england had already won the shield set the record for for points in a regular season a phenomenal year from them philly second uh, nashville and, and nycfc all four of those teams had clinched. There were then three spots up for grabs between Atlanta, Orlando, the New York Red Bulls, Montreal, DC United, and the Columbus Crew. Out west, Matt, four spots were clinched, the same as the Eastern Conference, Seattle, Kansas City, Colorado, and Portland. Three spots then up for grabs. Seven teams make the playoffs from each conference here. And those spots were up for grabs between Minnesota, Vancouver, the Galaxy, RSL, and LAFC. And in addition to all of that, in the Western Conference, the top spot was still open between Seattle, Kansas City, and Colorado. As we found out, the Colorado Rapids secured that one seed in the West, which is a phenomenal accomplishment that we'll talk more about later on. Minnesota snagged the fifth seed, Vancouver in sixth, and RSL snuck in and snagged the seventh seed in their last dying breath. In the East, Atlanta secured the fifth seed, Orlando in sixth, and the New York Red Bulls snagged the the seventh seed excuse me, and managed to drag just about everybody over at MLSsoccer.com in the process. Doyle, having laid that foundation, do you have a top moment from Sunday? Either a moment that made you go, holy crap, I can't believe that just happened, or a moment that you think will be remembered years from now for any number of different reasons. I, I think it's two, right? And, and I, I would question the sanity of, of anyone who picks anything other than these two moments. The Demir Krylock goal, off the, the Justin Miram bicycle kick attempt that ended up being a perfect assist for Krylock to side foot home in the 93rd minute at Sporting Kansas City to to lift RSL over the over the red line and into the playoffs ahead of the LA Galaxy, um, that was kind of hilarious. 
That was absolutely hilarious because Galaxy fans have been talking so much all year long on Twitter and every other social media. Um, and to see them uh, fall apart so completely down the stretch and RSL, it, honestly, they did everything in their power to, to lose this spot with that 4-3 loss to the Quakes last weekend. I, I wrote them off. I had my, I had my tears of, of the, you know, playoffs ranked thing and i had a galaxy blurb in there already because rsl had done so much to, to hamstring themselves and to to get in like that uh and to have the goal come off the foot of crylock who is one of the great players in rsl history and one of the underrated players in the league today um it was it was wild and it was spectacular and it's everything that decision day you hope it can be and, and it was in that moment and the other one um, is Wando's goal in retirement, uh, which I am still uh, trying to process emotionally uh, because for anyone who loves American soccer, um, you have to love Chris Wondolowski, what, what he represents as a player and what he's represented as a story and hopefully um, what he can represent to all the o- other overlooked uh, players who will be coming down the pike in, in years and decades to come. And, um, you know, I'm brokenhearted he retired. I, I honestly think he could have been a, a 800 minute a year, super effective, super sub uh, until he was my age. But I, I guess, uh, I, I guess father time finally, finally won against Wando. So that, those are my two big takeaways from, from Sunday. I, I don't think I'm a I'm a really emotional guy on a regular basis, but man, I, I got a little emotional watching that clip that was floating around on Twitter of Wando saying goodbye to San Jose fans. He chose to have his retirement speech not in the press conference after, not in some sort of video posted from home on Twitter that, that, that then would be posted on Twitter, but no, he chose to have it on the field in San Jose at that stadium. It just felt so right and also so wrong at the same time imagining an MLS landscape without Chris Wondolowski. That was a phenomenal moment. And to have him score in that game as well, it was it was the perfect way to go out in a lot of senses. It was. Well, in a lot of senses. I, I think he would have liked to, liked to go a out win. with a win. And a, yeah, and I would have, I would have liked to, to have seen him you know, go out uh, in the playoffs. Um, so like, that's, that's part of, part of why I'm bummed that he's retiring because, you know, all right, come back one more year, get into the playoffs and make one more good run. Give us one more, uh, super memorable Chris Wondolowski moment. But I, I admire the fact that he went out on his terms and I'm like, I'm going to be honest with you, Joe, I haven't watched the retirement speech yet. I, mm. I, I, I don't, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'm in the uh, emotional space to, uh, to watch that. I'll probably take a peek at it sometime in December after MLS cup is done. But, um, you know, certainly the goal was a classic Chris Wondolowski moment. And, uh, it's nice. Uh, let, let me just contextualize. I, I, I watch almost everything and have watched almost everything for the past 25 years, um, from the context of wanting to see American and Canadian players develop, um, and savvy and, tactical awareness and know-how and what what is nice about it is that there are suddenly so many other young American and Canadian players scoring those savvy Chris Wondolowski type goals so it felt it felt appropriate in a lot of ways and it felt like the baton has been passed to players like you know Brian White and 
Miguel Berry and hopefully Io Akinola when he comes back next year. It's been passed and it'll be um, in good hands or at good feet in the years to come. And so that was that was kind of nice as well. We'll get to more of the decision to action in just a minute. I want to ask one more Wando question, Wando, Wando-centric question. What do you think is next for Wando Doyle? Or, or if if not a prediction, what do you think he'd be good at? I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around him doing something other than playing soccer. It's a similar situation with Kyle Beckerman, right? And now he has moved into coaching at the collegiate level. Could something like that be in the cards for Chris Wondolowski? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I could see that. I could see him you know, maybe wanting to just be a community ambassador. Um, but what really intrigues me is the concept of skill coaches and positional coaches like you have in uh, the NFL and now to a lesser extent in the NBA um, w- where it's like, okay, you know, this guy just like, he's the wide receivers coach. He works with receivers on running routes and hip fakes and body position and everything like that. And it feels to me like soccer is behind a lot of the other big sports, certainly in America, um, in terms of having a coaching staff with such specificity. And I would love to see a world in which someone like Chris Wondolowski gets hired either by the Federation or by his hometown team to, to be like, look, I'm, I'm here to teach forwards how to make double moves off the ball. I'm here to teach forwards how to understand not just their own, you know, body shape, but the the body shape and the hip positioning of the defender to know when to dart in front of them or when to fade back, you know, back post off their back shoulder. I, I'm, you know, my job is not tactics or strategy. My job is root running and repetition. So what intrigues me most is a world where Wando retires and that becomes his job, whether it's working with the Academy kids or the first team or all of them. That's what I would like to see. And and I kind of suspect that sort of thing is coming. I don't know if it's going to be with Wando or maybe a generation later. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's a missed opportunity that that doesn't exist for most or even any MLS team that I, that I could think of. And I hope it's something that an ambitious team sees and thinks about and decides to take the initiative and really create that kind of, you know, built out coaching staff, like, like we see in, in American football. I think that's something that, uh, you know, soccer around the world can kind of learn from. I love that Doyle. I think that's a great idea. Let's, let's get on that. Maybe Ernie and, and Brian can make some calls from uh, soccer house and we'll see what happens. You don't think Anthony Hudson's teaching the boys uh, <laughs> stuff like that? No. Oh, Doyle. I don't know. I don't think so though. Who knows? I could be mistaken. We've got plenty more decision day chat to get to, but first a word from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we are back with more from Decision Day, and, and we're going to do some looking ahead to the postseason as well. Doyle, I want to take our attention to maybe my favorite game, if not my favorite, one of my favorite games from Sunday, the Colorado Rapids 5-2 win over Bob Bradley's LAFC. That win put them first in the Western Conference and left LAFC outside of the playoff field. The Rapids played well in this game, and you don't always have to play well to score five goals, but oftentimes that does tend to happen. They created chances. The, the, the style that we're seeing from Robin Frazier, I think, is impressive and versatile in a way that a lot of other teams have, have been unable to match in Major League Soccer this year. But most importantly, man, the fact that they, this team, with, with what they spend, won the Western Conference. I should say what they don't spend won the Western Conference. It's incredible. How how do they do it, though? How did this happen? Uh you call them flexible and you know malleable and uh tactically uh, amorphous at time but then also tactically rigid when they need to be uh, and i think for that's i mean that is the key for colorado they have in in robin frazier um i think one of the best head coaches in the league just in terms of uh, creating a, a tactical blueprint that is executable for for his for his team um and that speaks to the the strength of the team which is that there are no weak links there you know i don't think the rapids have any true stars uh, there's not you know who who would come closest like maybe mark anthony k maybe um you know or, or maybe if austin trust like austin trusty took a big step forward this year if he takes another big step forward next year i could see him being uh, best 11 caliber, but that's like, that's an if. And also he might not even be in MLS next year. I think his contract is up and, and you know, there's European interest, but like, that's it. There are no stars on this team, but there are no weak links. And soccer is like, you, you need your stars to come through, but more than that, to be a good team, you need to have your weakest link be very, very strong. And uh, Robin Frazier was able to go, you know, down to 22, 23 on the roster and no weak links. Even after they sold Sam Vines, they were able to, you know, to answer that uh, need on the left side of the defense or midfield because they spent so much time in a 3-4-2-1. And so they don't beat them to themselves. They don't make it easy for you to beat them. And that was the key for, for well, and on top of that, they anything you throw at them tactically, they were basically able to match. It was almost like, you know, I, I wrote about this today. Like it re- reminded me of, of certain Syria clubs in the late '90s, where like none of them had a specific for. Well, I don't say none, but most didn't have a specific formation. Most were totally willing to throw their defensive midfielder on at left back, and their left back at right back, and their right back at left wing, if that's what the tactical. Uh, battle of the day called for and Robin Frazier has has kind of done something like that this year 
Um, and it's a it's credit to him for you know being a good enough. I couldn't do that for being a good enough coach to do that. But also credit to his players for being smart and flexible enough to do that. I mean, just being a super smart team is is a very good advantage to have going into any game. And uh, the 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 Rapids were absolutely able to weaponize that all year long. You hit on Robin Frazier a couple of different times in that response, which I appreciate. I want to dig a little deeper on Robin Frazier. I remember being pretty darn impressed with the work he did with the Rapids when he first moved from Toronto FC under Greg Vanny to then taking charge of the Rapids for just the last, what, six, seven games of that regular season a couple years back. He had instilled things in that team that we just hadn't seen in far too long from Colorado. And and I think that's hugely impressive. I was filling out my end-of-year awards ballot on, shoot, what was that, Saturday night, Friday night? It doesn't matter. I was going through that awards ballot, and Coach of the Year came up. And it's a hard one to pick, especially this year. We might touch more on that later. Ultimately, I voted for Bruce Arena. And I don't have any real regrets about that. But it was a hard decision. This accomplishment from Robin Frazier almost made me wish that I had waited and held off on voting just a couple days longer. Because this is an incredible achievement. And it's been it's been in front of our eyes all year long. It still would have been an impressive achievement had they finished third in the West. They were having a strong season either way. But the way the chips fell and, and the way the Rapids forced the chips into falling was impressive on decision day. Is is Robin Frazier not not a favorite for Coach of the Year, but he certainly deserves consideration for that award, right? I'm, I'm not I'm not crazy on that one. No, I, I had him runner up. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I think this Rapids team is a 53-54 point team, and they ended up with 61. And that's a, that's a good amount of overperformance. Um, and I, it comes from, I, I think, more from from what Frazier did, both tactically and in terms of uh, in terms of getting locker room buy-in um, than any sort of talent advantage. Um, what Bruce did. I mean, he set the, this team set the points record, and I know they have a really, really good team. But there are other really good or really talented teams that aren't really good teams, and the Revs, uh, the Revs checked both of those boxes, and they did it with a certain amount of style, and they were able to keep doing it even when Carlos Hill was gone, even when Matt Turner was on international duty. Like, look at their points per game; they didn't drop off. Um, so. I think Robin Frazier deserves all the credit in the world, but to push back against the way you framed it, this actually was an easy choice this year. If your team sets the the single season points record, um, in spite of the fact that you've had injuries and international absences to your two best players, um, you deserve coach of the year. Yeah, that's entirely fair. I want to look at the other side of this game before we move on to uh, a game in the Eastern Conference from Sunday, LAFC. There have been some conflicting reports around Bob Bradley and a potential move to Toronto FC. Paul and Sam have been talking about that in more of a hypothetical way, if I've read their, if I've listened to their shows correctly, uh, on Allocation Disorder, which drops typically on Fridays in the TSS feed. There's been discussion around Bob Bradley after what has been a really disappointing year for him and LAFC in this game particular against Colorado, I thought they looked rushed with the ball. I thought they looked disorganized. I thought they looked pretty much incapable of playing through midfield and instead just opted to play long balls from the back three into the forward line, or at least that was certainly an issue in the early stages of this game. What's what's gone wrong for LAFC, or maybe what are a couple of things that have gone wrong? Because in my view, there's, there's maybe a, a semi-long list here, Doyle. 
Yeah, I mean, they've made a lot of bad trades. They've had a lot of bad injuries. And too few of the young players that they've signed have developed. Um, you know, it, it started after that 2019 season when they uh, when they got rid of Walker Zimmerman. Um, you know, and and that that's going to go down as one of the is one of the worst trades in MLS history. Um, he, he like he he's a best eleven center back in his prime. Just pay, give him a five year. Do what Nashville did. Give him a five year deal, and pay him seven figures, and say okay. We're not going to have to worry about this until 2026. Um, so, that, I mean, that was one. And But then, you know, I, signing Brian Rodriguez. He, Brian Rodriguez is, is an immense talent. Signing him as your third DP when you already had Vela and Rossi um, and you clearly needed a DP center forward, that was an unnecessary heat check. If Imagine... If LAFC, if that 2019 LAFC team had gone out and signed a, a Raul Ruiz Diaz style center for, or even signed Christian Arango, who was so good this year, so they didn't they didn't do that. They they just got so wild with the idea of bringing in so many young prospects that it's it's like they forgot about building a team, and then that was compounded this year by two big things. One being the injuries to Vela, Segura, and Atuesta. And that's your most important attacker, your most important defender, and your most important midfielder. That's one. And then the other is that they didn't finish well. Like, if you look at their, like, it, I, I, I'm talking about LAFC, and, and we kind of framed it as, like, oh, this awful team, what happened to them? But also, like, if you watch any of their games this year anyone would be like this this team plays beautiful soccer this team knows exactly what they're doing they get the ball into good spots they create great chances but they didn't finish them nobody finished anything until Arango got there um and that like that on top of the injuries on top of the underperformance from the young kids and then we'll add in the goalkeeper woes because oh my god their goalkeepers uh are not good um <laughs> They like they they hamstrung themselves. Like if this team had Walker Zimmerman and Tyler Miller uh, and and you know a DP center forward instead of having three DP wingers, um, they have sixty points. We're talking about them, you know, maybe breaking the curse and winning MLS Cup this year. But they got too cute, I think, in their roster build. They just they just uh, you know it was, there's a little too much yellow in it, and and, and they paid the price. Oh, too much YOLO can be a dangerous thing. I think we learned that in LA this year. One one thing I'll add to what you're saying, Doyle, statistically, and you mentioned some of the, the overperformance, underperformance, I should say. Uh, I was on American Soccer Analysis' site earlier today looking at some things for this show, and no team has underperformed their expected numbers as much, their expected goal difference to be specific, as much as LAFC has this season. So to your point about them playing some good soccer at times, I would argue it, it, it's been less clean and, and less picturesque than the height of their powers and when LAFC were at the height of their powers. But there's still things happening on the field with logical reasoning behind them. They just haven't turned into enough goals this season. And ultimately, that's that's a big part of what's left them out of the playoff picture. Flipping over to the Eastern Conference, a game that caught my eye on in one of the earlier slots, in the early slot on Sunday, was Orlando's 2-0 win over Montreal. Uh, Orlando locking up the sixth spot in the East. I mentioned this earlier today on the Weekend Review show. 
I, I, I'm a sucker for Montreal. I'm a sucker for what Wilfred Nancy's done. And, and I think the work that he has accomplished there this season has been nothing short of impressive. Orlando, though, for their part, uh, they've done enough to make it inside the top seven in the East this year. But I can't shake the feeling that this team is is not what they were even in MLS's back, which is really when I thought they started to burst onto the scene under Oscar Pereja. It feels to me like... And I think this is borne out in the numbers as well. They're not as dangerous with the ball. They're they're somewhat effective defensively, and they have good players. But it feels to me like the pieces aren't fully there right now with Orlando. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, And it's to the point now where it feels like the MLS's back tournament, like that, that performance that Orlando put in over that month was the mirage. And the truth of it is that this team is just, they're not going to be the type that can beat you with the ball. They're not the type that can control where on the field the game is played and the tempo it's played at um, by dominating possession because it's been a year and a half since then and they haven't done it. You know, the second half of last year, um, after the MLS's back tournament, they had two big injuries. Jean Moutinho, at left back, and Ori Russell, the, the uh, central midfielder, when those two guys were so central to everything they did in possession that Pereja just ended up throwing up his hands and becoming a counterattacking team down the stretch, um, which was the right call. But they never fully got out of that mode at any point in 2021. Now, I kind of thought they would. I thought in September when, you know, Jackson Mendes came back and Moutinho was back. You know, Nani and Pereira were healthy. And, you know, Daryl DK is still a very linear player, but he's, he's got more guile to his game than I think people realize. Um, I thought that they would have a chance to sort of meld and become the type of team that their talent says they should be, but they're not. They're, like, they're, they, they're a good team, you know, and they're a talented team, um, but they they only beat you in moments. They don't beat you over the course of the game. Um, and maybe that'll be good enough, right? Because they do have some match winners, especially if Nani can, you know, find the fountain of youth one last time. But um, it that is, I think, less than I had hoped for from this Orlando City side. And so it's kind of disappointing because, I, again, I think back to MLS's back and, God, they were so much fun to watch. So good. Yeah, and they're not that anymore. Flipping us back over to the Western Conference, maybe the game of Decision Day, the 3-3 draw between the LA Galaxy and Minnesota United got Minnesota the five seed in the West, and thanks to RSL's win at the death that we mentioned earlier, the Galaxy left below the playoff line. I just thought this game was awesome. Both teams created chances in their own ways. Both teams looked vulnerable at times. It was it was fun. And it was a reminder of how the talent level in MLS is improving, albeit slowly. It is certainly improving with the talent that was on talent the field. Talent level on the Galaxy backline is improving pretty slowly. <laughs> well, that's that's a solid transition into asking a question about the Galaxy. They dropped off a cliff towards the end of this season. A lot of their underlying numbers were still okay. But, I mean, results-wise, it was night and day from where they had been earlier in the year, where they looked like a, a surefire playoff team. And you kind of addressed this earlier. It even felt like that was going to happen yesterday, on Sunday, as we're recording on Monday. This year under Greg Vanny, obviously, his first in L.A., kind of the the new era post-Gamobar Charlotto. Finishing outside the playoffs, certainly not a good thing. 
Tactically, though, I think there's a lot to like about what's been going on. Doyle, I'll ask you a simple question. Is 2021, has this been a successful season for the LA Galaxy? No. Uh, it was a step forward, and I am much more convinced that they will have success in the future than I was a year ago. Uh, but no, this is the LA Galaxy. I don't think they, they get a moral victory here um, for for choking at home on, on, on decision day. Um, and for being one of the worst teams in the league since, you know, the, the end of summer or even longer back than that. Um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think a single person in that locker room would consider it uh, a successful season. And um, I think the good news for the galaxy is that, you know, Chicharito was so great all year. Well, when he was healthy um, and, and not just great in terms of scoring goals, but great in terms of his attitude and his ability to sort of lift the guys around him um, and and get them to play with more. <laughs> it's cliche to say play with more joy, but like there there was a difference when he was out there versus when someone else was out there. Um, they they looked up for it in a different way. Now, obviously, it didn't turn into wins as often as it should have. But when your best paid player has that sort of emotional effect on the team, that that's good. Um, but, you know, that, that defense is still a mess. I think Nick DePue is their best center back. And, you know, he's a converted forward from, from college. And, you know, they spent a ton of money on center backs again. Um, I'm, I, I left this season still having no idea what their best formation is. They played a 4-4-2 yesterday. And, Joe, did you see the amount of space between the center backs and the central midfield? Gats, like, wh- yeah, what the hell is happening there? <laughs> um, like, so there are, and then there's Kevin Cabral. They spent six million dollars for Kevin Cabral. They could have bought his team for three million dollars. You know, uh, it, 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 so they. I mean, there are there are some issues that are clearly based around talent identification that they have to solve because it looks like even though they took a step forward. Um, they got a lot of they got a lot of the personnel stuff wrong, um, and that is a worry going forward. As many positive things as there are, and there are positives for the galaxy, there are a ton of worries about the f- fact that they still can't seem to sign a lot of the right guys. A team that I do think signed and ended up signing a couple of the right guys is the Galaxy's opponent from this game on Sunday, Minnesota United. It feels to me like they might. Emphasis on might. I'm, I'm sitting on the fence here, as I so often do. Have the right recipe to make a postseason run, right? So many things can change. There are so many factors there. But for me, though, a lot of that rests on some of the players that I'm referencing. Emmanuel Reynoso, who is not new to Minnesota, but is phenomenal. And then Franco Fragapane and Adrian Hunu, the, the left winger and striker, respectively, that Minnesota United brought in mid-season. Uh, how do you think those three guys have played together this year? And do you think they can carry this team in the postseason? Uh, yeah, I don't think they can carry him to MLS Cup. I, you know, last year, Babello Reynoso was like that. That was an all time, that was an all time MLS Cup or MLS playoff performance from him. I think he had, God, I think he had six assists in three games, a goal and six assists in three games. Um, and, and like, He'll be good this year. He was really good on Sunday, but you can't expect your best player to to be that good. Um, and then you know the other guys are all 
good, but then you think back to last year and like Kevin Molina was maybe the second best player in the playoffs. And like, all right, Franco Fragapane is a good player. He's probably not going to be as good as Molina was. Um, but it's still a, a really, it's a really well-balanced and dangerous attacking quartet. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, Ozzy Alonso being healthy and playing the way he did in the second half of the year, having Ozzy and, you know, a pretty serviceable wheel trap, like that all works. Um, but Minnesota at the same time, they give up really soft goals. They don't have any foot speed um, up the spine. So they can just get shredded in transition. Um, and then as good as the attack can look, they left a lot of goals on the table. I know they scored three on decision day and they scored two a week ago against uh, Sporting KC, but like those are kind of outliers compared to what they've been doing all season long. So while I think they could put in a couple of good performances, it would uh, Reynoso would have to go full supernova uh, in, in order for this team to make MLS Cup. And he almost got them there last year with, as I said, one of the great postseason performances I've ever seen, but it like it maybe lightning will strike twice, but it's it's tough to bet on it. Listeners, we've got plenty more MLS chat to get to, but first another word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back once again. Thank you for sticking with us. 
Matt, I want to ask about the New York Red Bulls, um, not just because they've been lighting people up, myself included, on social media. They're in my mentions, and, and I welcome it. I bring it bring it on, New York Red Bulls social media admin. Uh, but they're in phenomenal form right now. Gareth Struber's team, after struggling for large parts of the season, has won seven of their last 12 games, tied four, and lost just one game. One of the most recent results, and the most recent result, was the draw with Nashville on Sunday on Decision Day that helped uh, the, helped them snag the seventh seed in the Eastern Conference. I've been impressed, really, when I've watched the Red Bulls recently. Uh, they don't have the most talented squad, but they play Gerard Struber's way, which is to say the Red Bull way, quite well. What's behind the turnaround for this team? How did they manage to turn this whole darn thing around? Yeah, I, I, I think the formation change was a big one. Um, you know, Struber spent the first half or maybe even well more than half, well, I guess two thirds of the year playing out of either a four, four, two diamond or sometimes a three, five, two. Um, and that's the way he has gone about it in the past. That is the way that most Red Bull teams play, you know, in Salzburg and Leipzig and down in Brazil as well. Like it's almost always a four, four, two. It is sometimes a three, five, two. Um, and then, for whatever reason, I think it was the fact that there's not really good balance between the forwards on the team. Um, but anyway, he, he switched first to a 4-2-3-1 and then to a 3-4-2-1. Um, I think it ended up making it more difficult for opposing teams to sort of cut out that or cut through the first line of the press. I think because of playing a, a, a more horizontal, a wider formation, they were able to just generate more field coverage. And I don't think teams have quite figured out how to play through that. So if you look at the last, you know, eight, ten games, however long it's been, Red Bulls have been playing great. As you said, they've lost only once. They've also been controlling those games. Like, whether it's NYCFC or Nashville or you know, DC to a lesser extent, though DC is actually a team that beat them. Every one of those games ended up being played on the Red Bulls' terms. Every every single team they faced eventually threw away their own game plan and said, "We can't beat this press. We're just going to have to beat the Red Bulls at their own game." And DC was the only one who could do it. And that's partially because maximum overdrive, which is what we're calling. Uh, <laughs> Fernando Lasada ball is is a close cousin of energy drink soccer, um, so they so DC were very well prepared to do it. Now, to be fair, I, I think Nashville could have easily had a game winner down the stretch yesterday, and you know Carlos Coronel had had a couple of nice stops, and then Honey Mukhtar pushed one wide. Um, but still, like these are the margins that you have to be able to function in if you're going to beat the Red Bulls right now. So the formation change helped a lot. Um, and the other thing is, Struber changed a lot of personnel in like late summer. He, he just kind of, all right, th- threw his hands up and brought in six new starters. And this is in the midst of, a, of again, the summertime during a, a year with a very condensed schedule because we had the late start. Um, and everybody's legs were tired except the Red Bulls because they had six new starters. <laughs> you know? So when suddenly you're, you're playing this breakneck smash bang press and you have a lot of fresh legs in there, um, 
you know, the press could be a lot more effective. And I think that was part of it. Uh, so it was weirdly good per, like personnel management by Struber, who had not done well with that, I don't think at all, through the first half of the season. Um, and to that end, I actually should mention Drew Yearwood as well, because one of the other things that worked was going to a double pivot in front of the back line, whether they play three at the back or four at the back. It's always now uh, Drew Yearwood and Sean Davis together. And I think that gave them, again, more coverage and more flexibility. But also, um, look, if you're pressing with a two, then you're kind of aiming to send send the you know send the opposing team down one of the sidelines you know down your strong side sideline um if you're pressing with a one you know four two three one or three four two one you're gonna have more of those moments where the turnover you're causing is gonna happen in central midfield um and so putting another central midfielder in there a guy who's a pretty decent ball winner and drew yearwood to both protect the back line and to win more of those 50-50s or even just straight-up loose balls ended up working out very, very well for this team. Toyo, you just walked us through the Red Bulls turnaround in a really informative way, so thank you for that. And we've also talked very briefly about Lasada and, and Wilfred Nancy. At least their names have come up today. We talked about Greg Vanny as well. You had a tweet out towards the end of last week that was talking about some of these new coaches, or maybe more accurately was talking about how many of them there have been. The tweet read like this. Of the 26 MLS clubs that took the field 12 months ago, 13 have new coaches today. That could jump to 15 if LAFC and San Jose make changes after the season ends. It looks like that's coming in LA, and it might be coming in San Jose as well. So that that may be a little prophetic from you there. Of the clubs with new coaches this season, Who's impressed you most? I, I have a couple soft spots for a few different folks, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear your take on this. I, I think you mentioned Wilfred Nancy before. Um, and look, we all know that Montreal is, is, is one of the harder jobs in the league for a number of different reasons. Um, and, you know, Thierry Henry handled that last year by saying, okay, I'm going to put the veterans out there. I'm going to play a 5-4-1 with at least three defensive midfielders on the field. Um, and I'm just going to be tough to break down and tough to beat. And I, I don't blame Omri for that because it was a COVID year. It was weird. And you do what it takes to get to the postseason, and they did. Um, Nancy went in the other direction. He decided that uh, while he kept a lot of the shape, though it was much more of a 3-4-2-1 because – the, you know, the both wingbacks played a lot higher, and then the half-space guys were real half-space guys and not just destroyers. Um, they also got more and more comfortable with the ball as the year went along. They were able to to play real soccer in a way that, that you know, Montreal have not played real soccer often over, over their decade in MLS. Um, and it's a shame they didn't, you know, they didn't make the playoffs. Uh, because it would have been good to see them there. Uh, but, you know, the, the the thing with that roster is, I mean, they were at a talent deficit almost every single game. And that only grew, that deficit only grew down the home stretch during the most important part of the year. First Mason Toy went out, and then Romel Kyoto and uh, Victor Wanyama missed basically everything from the beginning of October onwards. And it was just too 
big a hill to climb. Um, but I, I hope that Wilfred Nancy can be for Montreal what Jim Curtin has been for Philadelphia. Um, because Montreal needs somebody like that, and they need to have patience um, with Nancy the way that uh, the Philly ownership has had patience with Jim Curtin. Yeah, I love that, Doyle, and I love what Wilfred Nancy has done there. I'm not so sure that having Victor, Victor Wanyama is more of an asset than not having him on the field, but yes, I certainly oh, take your point there. Let's let's close out this show by looking at the playoffs. Quick format explainer for me. Seven teams make it from each conference. That's what this whole decision day thing is all about. The top seed in each conference ends up with a bye. So the Rapids have a bye in the West and the Revs have a bye in the East. The bottom six teams then play in round one, which is what we're going to focus on right now. That round will take place on Saturday, November 20th, Sunday, November 21st, and Tuesday, November 23rd. And then the one seed joins in and we have ourselves some, some nice conference semifinals. For you, Doyle, are there one or two round one matchups that you're most looking forward to? Portland, Minnesota, Kansas City, Vancouver, Seattle, RSL out west, and then in the east, NYCFC in Atlanta, Nashville, Orlando, and the Red Bulls in Philly. I mean, Nashville, Atlanta should be spicy, right? It should be. Uh, Orlando, Orlando, you mean. Sorry, yeah. Nashville, Orlando should be spicy, given what happened last weekend. Um, So I have my eye on that, but but Philly, Red Bulls... um, that's a big one because the Red Bulls, as we just talked about, they're cooking right now. Uh, but Philly play a similar style, uh, so they, they should not be overawed in the same way that D.C. weren't overawed. Uh, you know, again, D.C., the only team that beat New York over the past two months was D.C. United. In the same way D.C. weren't overawed, Philly shouldn't be overawed. And then there's more to it with Philly. Right, because every single year under Jim Curtin, this team has taken a, this team took a step forward in the regular season. Like if you go back to the start of Jim Curtin, like that every single year they've had more points, and that culminated le- with last year winning the Supporters Shield. What they haven't really done is taken a massive postseason step forward. You know, they got their first home game a couple years ago against the Red Bulls, and they won it. That was their first playoff win. That another home game last year in the playoffs and the revs smoked them so if the they're gonna take a step forward this year now granted you could argue it already came the ccl but still if they're gonna take a step forward this year it seems like it would be in the playoffs and it seems like laying down a marker and and, and you know beating up on the red bulls uh would be a good way to show that philly is not just a scrappy little team but we need to start conceptualizing them, thinking of them as favorites in the same way that we've thought about Seattle as favorites for the past five years. So that is, in the Eastern Conference, I think those two stand out a little bit more than NYCFC Atlanta, which frankly should be NYCFC just smoking Atlanta. Atlanta's got one win against the playoff team all year long. NYCFC, um, by the underlying numbers, they're one of the two best teams in the league. And they're at Yankee Stadium in this one, which is a massive home field advantage for them. Yeah, I'm all aboard the the Philly-Red Bulls matchup there. Uh, one other thing I, w- I wanted to mention in terms of playoff matchups is Vancouver-SKC. I think uh, my Scottish friend, who's also a host of TSS, Graham Ruthven, would be disappointed if I didn't at least mention Ryan Gold's name on this show. So there you go, Graham. I've done it. He's been phenomenal in, in, in MLS this season since coming over from Portugal. He's been he's been really, really good. But even more spicy than Ryan Gold is interim Whitecaps coach Vanny Sartini, who... Uh, 
is just a, a gem in front of the camera for the Vancouver Whitecaps. He said after the 1-1 the draw that the Whitecaps had with the Sounders on Sunday, he was informed by a staff member on his team that they'd be taking on SKC and just quickly and, and almost nonchalantly said, we will beat Sporting Kansas City. So I'm excited for that one, if only to get more Vanny Sartini content. Um, before I let you go, Doyle, and I will let you go, I'm curious, can you give me one Matt Doyle contender and one Matt Doyle pretender, trademark patent pending, from each conference to to really tie a nice, neat little bow on this semi-playoff preview? Yeah, I think uh, contenders, again, NYCFC are the fourth seed, so I, I think that sort of undersells how good this team is when, when they click. When they play good soccer, I'm not sure anybody in MLS plays better than they can play. And, um, you know, we'll... we'll I, I think that they are heavy favorites in that Atlanta game. Um, but then if they get past, if they get past the five stripes, they go to Foxborough. Um, or, and, and like, that's, I mean, that's a really big test, but we saw them go to Foxborough this year and handle the revs. Like they knocked the revs around in Foxborough. So that I mean, they are NYCFC are as far as I'm concerned, high level contenders. Um, I'm gonna go Sporting Kansas City as pretenders, mm, and I spicy. Yeah, I know it's a little bit spicy, but um, you know, Alan Polito hasn't been healthy, hasn't played in forever. Uh, they have other injuries that they have to worry about, and then I, I two things. So with the way their press works, right? They press out of a three. Um, if, if you, and they're very good at it, to be clear, they are super, super good at it. Still, after 10 years of this from Peter Vermees, they're very, very good at it. But if you're able to break the first line of that pressure, then you get into midfield and it's a straight shot into the half spaces because they play with a single pivot, whether it's Ilya Sanchez or Remy Volta or whoever they play with. And so there's always space to one side or the other of the demon and that puts a lot of pressure on the center backs to step up and to make plays and they do it a lot like their, their center backs have been very i voted andrew fontas as defender of the year this year because he's that integral um but there's a difference between scrambling in the regular season and scrambling in the playoffs and we saw that last year this team gave up six goals in two games in the playoffs and i just think I think you can blow I think you could blow Sporting Kansas City up physically and with quick ball movement. Um and I think that we've been starting to see that a little bit down the stretch here. And so I yeah, like I, I'm not sure that I'm going to predict that Vancouver um will, will beat Sporting Kansas City, uh but it wouldn't shock me at all and I I I honestly cannot see this sporting team hoisting MLS Cup. I think they're pretenders. Oh, baby, I cannot wait for this playoff action, not just to see if you're right or not, Doyle, but just because I'm generally excited about Major I got League some soccer. questions for you, though, Joe. Please, I yeah. Two questions for you. First of all, how tall are you? Uh, I am five foot ten inches tall. Okay. All right. I had 6'2 in my head. I, I don't know. I just <laughs> thought 6'2. All right. The second one. What is your 40 time? Oh gosh. Uh I don't know. I never ran it uh, back when that was all the rage in our in our Twitter group chat to peel back the curtain a little bit. I imagine I am somewhere right above five seconds. 
Is that good? Best I, I want to be clear. Best. Like, okay, slower, Yo, slower than that. Then slower, slower, best slower. Best. Okay, five, five, so, five, total, five. Total soccer show listeners, you have to bully Joe <laughs> into posting a video of him running the forty. He has to tweet a video of himself running. <laughs> I think you should bully Taylor into it as well, and the whole cast uh. of characters that you guys have on the show. Joe, we need to see this by the time the playoffs are over. If we don't have a video <laughs> of you running the 40, and I'm fine with a hand time, sure. right? It doesn't have to be official. That's very generous. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm fine with hand time. <laughs> I'm going to be very upset, and I know the listeners of the show are going to be very upset as well. Oh, Doyle, what have you done to me? I will no longer be uh, attending the gym or lifting weights. I am strictly about speed training now. I need to get my time up before December 11th, which is MLS Cup. Doyle, you have you have just changed my workout regimen. And to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of here for it. The content is going to be real. Seriously, thank you, Doyle, again, for coming on the show. Uh, listeners, you can follow Doyle on Twitter. You should. He's a must follow. And, and maybe more importantly, read his stuff at MLSsoccer.com. I... I look forward to that Monday column, Sunday night column, I should say. Maybe it's maybe it's Monday morning for you when you actually post it, when it gets posted. But man, that is that's one of my go-to pieces every single week, as is everything else that you write. Once again, thank you, Matt Doyle, for coming on. Thanks, Joe. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening, and the Total Soccer Show will be back again soon.